0: I've tried everything out there from Whole30 to intermittent fasting to gluten-free, dairy-free. So it's it's just a, been a journey of what, at the end of the day, what is something that's sustainable that I can stick with and then also have some flexibility too. And so we are all on our own journeys and and being aware of our bodies and what, from physically like exercise, what makes me feel good to what are the foods I'm putting in my body that make me feel good. And sometimes that's chocolate cake.
1: Welcome to the Find Empathy podcast, where we discuss the interaction between health and emotions. My name is Dr. Megan Beyer, and I'm a clinical psychologist with training in health psychology, rehabilitation psychology, and neuropsychology. In this first series, we're gonna focus on a population that I work with very closely, individuals and families living with multiple sclerosis. In this episode, we hear from three experts. Interestingly, two of these experts are living with multiple sclerosis themselves. Emily Riley is our patient advocate who works for the National MS Society, runs a YouTube channel for exercise and movement for people living with MS, and shares her own experience navigating through all the diet research and information on the web.
0: My name is Emily Riley, I am 33 years old and I currently live in Alexandria, Virginia. I am a proud Air Force wife. I'm a dog mom and an adaptive fitness trainer. I currently actually work as a healthcare provider engagement manager for the National MS Society, where I get to share information and resources uh, to providers who manage care of those living with MS.
1: Our clinician expert is Mona Bostick.
2: I'm a registered dietitian. I have a private practice where I live here in Greensboro, North Carolina. I work largely with the MS population, and that is uniquely interesting to me because I myself have lived with relapsing, remitting multiple
1: sclerosis since 2008. And in our final interview, we hear from Dr. Ellen Mowry, a neurologist and lifestyle researcher who has a special interest in dietary research.
3: I'm a neurologist at Johns Hopkins University, and I've trained also in epidemiology. And I've really been interested in a lot of aspects of uh, a person's life that they can uh, modify on their own to improve their outcomes as complements to already approved medications.
1: If you work with people that have multiple sclerosis, at some point, you're going to hear about diet. And this is for good reason. As highlighted by the National MS Society, a number of diet-related factors are linked to worse MS outcomes. For example, in some recent research, lower vitamin D and adolescent obesity were associated with increased risk for developing MS. In a mouse model of MS, it was found that salt was linked with more rapid development of disease. And there are numerous studies looking at gut bacteria in people with MS. Finally, some recent research has also examined, quote, MS diets. On one end of the spectrum, some individuals swear by stricter diets and they lived by strict dietary rules. On the other end of the spectrum, many individuals with MS struggle to eat healthy whole foods and in fact rely largely on prepackaged or easy-to-make foods. In the following interviews, you're going to hear details about dietary research, more on the quote MS diets, recommendations for healthy eating, as well as emotional factors or MS symptoms that may be playing a role on those two ends of the spectrum. As a note, diet can be a controversial topic in the MS world, with strong opinions on many sides. If this is a topic that is of interest, I would encourage you to continue seeking out additional resources and research to draw your own conclusions. In my own work, I do not focus on whether a particular diet is right, wrong, healthy or unhealthy, I feel like this is outside of my area of expertise. Rather, I focus on a few themes. I focus on whether a particular pattern of eating is positively or negatively impacting a person's well-being and the relationships that they have with family or friends. I also focus on whether rigid rules of eating are leading to self-criticism, guilt, or shame. If people are struggling with eating healthy foods, I focus on if there are any motivational or habit-based strategies that can be utilized to help maintain healthy lifestyle choices. In other words, are there barriers to getting in the way of healthy eating, or are there facilitators that are helping them to eat healthier? Are there MS symptoms that may be contributing to less healthy choices? For example, is fatigue leading to eating out more often or eating prepackaged foods? Is lack of sleep, depression, or anxiety leading to impulse eating or reduced intake of food? Finally, should there be any other professionals on the team to help? I examine whether something like an occupational therapist could help with managing fatigue or identifying strategies for cooking more efficiently at home. I also look to see if a dietician would help to manage comorbid conditions like diabetes or even give advice about eating healthy with MS. You're going to hear about all of this and more in the following interviews. We start off this series of interviews with Emily Riley. Emily, thank you so much for agreeing to be part of the podcast. Can you share a little bit about yourself and your journey with MS?
0: Sure. So my journey with MS actually began a little over 18 years ago. I grew up a really active lifestyle. My dream was to go play college soccer. And when I was 15 at a soccer practice, I noticed I was experiencing a lot of tingliness and numbness and weird electric zings. And just because those aren't normal, we got some tests done and an MRI, which led to a diagnosis of transverse myelitis. And then if we fast forward a couple years later, I signed a four-year soccer scholarship with Dallas Baptist University. And then a month later, my life changed forever. I was running sprints at practice and my legs were really heavy. And I was taking a lot of naps. And because of my previous neurologic history, they decided to get an MRI. And that's when they found multiple lesions on my spine, diagnosed me with relapsing, remitting, multiple sclerosis at the age of 17, which is definitely life-changing. And so I was really thankful. I got connected to an MS specialist right away. Shout out to Dr. Barry Hendon in Phoenix because <laughs> He was really amazing. He helped me really own my disease at like a young age. And he shared two things in that first appointment that were huge and powerful for me. He explained the purpose of disease modifying therapies and the importance of staying on them. And he also said that staying active was really important and to not let it stop me. And so I went on to play all four years of college soccer. I became an all-American goalkeeper. And I'm really thankful for the experience because it really made me learn how to listen to my body, how to manage my energy, and ultimately know that MS didn't have to stop me. It's been 16 years since my diagnosis, and I can say that it hasn't stopped me. I mean, it slowed me down and it's humbled me a lot over the years, but I'm, and I've had my fair share of relapses and medication changes, but overall, I'm really still doing well, thankfully, and I continue, although I do continue to fight pride <laughs> and learn how to go <laughs> and, and rest but that's a little bit about me and and my journey.
1: Well and I know you have stayed active and you know that's one thing that I think has changed in research over the years, right? That in the past decades ago people with MS were told not to be active. We know that that's hugely shifted over time. And that kind of taking care of our bodies in general, like staying physically active, eating well, those kinds of things are good for everyone, but especially helpful for people living with MS. Can you share a little bit more about that for you? Especially I'll start with being physically active because I know that's a huge passion for you. And then we'll kind of go into more nutritional things.
0: Yeah, I, I grew up living an active lifestyle. So the importance of of being physically active was just really instilled at me at a young age, which I'm really thankful for. And, you know, when I received my diagnosis, I didn't really know much about MS. I knew of a few people who, who lived with MS who used a wheelchair. And so I think that really scared me because I was really afraid that that being physically active was going to be taken away from me. But like I said, my neurologist, he emphasized the importance of staying active and that really empowered me to not let MS stop me. And obviously being a college athlete was a really wonderful experience and It not only showed me that MS didn't have to stop me, but it also showed me the impact that staying active had on me, not only physically, um, but also mentally and emotionally. And so I think that that's why I became a personal trainer, because I really wanted to create adaptive fitness classes for all levels of ability. And I really wanted to share the message with the MS community that no matter what their limitation, they can keep moving. And, And I really wanted to show them how to do that. These days I I teach classes a few times a week online and, and, and they're available online so people can keep moving. And that's been such a joy just to be able to share that with others. And I guess when I think about like wellness, there's like so many dimensions to it. It's not just like the exercise piece, but there's like the mental piece and the social piece. And, and I don't know, I always think like you can exercise all the time, but if I'm eating a really crappy diet, it kind of defeats the purpose, you know, Mm -hmm. or the same thing can be said, like maybe we're focusing on eating healthy, but not being intentional with like moving our bodies. And so I think if we kind of approach it in more of like a comprehensive way, that's something to really strive for. But as we all know, living with MS is so unpredictable. And I think becoming more aware of our bodies and making adjustments is key. And that goes for managing our energy and knowing what kind of movement maybe I can do that day based on the symptoms that I'm experiencing to you know, what kind of foods fuel my body and make me feel my best. Mm -hmm.
1: Can you just highlight briefly, what are some of the things that you do online? And I will list all of this in the resource page, as well as a podcast page as well, so that people can find it. But I think it would be great for people to hear what you're doing online.
0: I Base a lot of the the movements and the types of exercises that we do based off of some research that the National MS Society published a little while back and the kinds of exercises we should be incorporating into our workout routines that are beneficial for people with MS include aerobic, which is like any cardiovascular exercise, um, resistance training, whether you use like a TheraBand or body weight, neuromotor exercises. So like hand-eye coordination or agility or balance, core strengthening, stretching and then even breathing, especially for people who maybe aren't able to get their heart rate up as high. If you have more limited mobility, really focusing on um, breathing and using like a spirometer, those kinds of things are just really important to try to incorporate. And so I try to include those things as well as just even like cognitive challenges in in the workouts too. And we all, everybody living with MS, we experience things differently, but I really want to try to make sure I'm incorporating all those components so that we can continue living well with this disease and, and, but it also being beneficial for us too.
1: That's awesome. So in one of the earlier episodes, we had Kathy Zakowski, who's also part of the MS society, who talked a lot about some of those things that you just shared. So If you hear that episode and then go to your YouTube video and follow along, you will get the actual practical how-tos of uh, what Dr. uh, Zakowski shared. So I wanted to get back to the nutritional side because you brought that up as well. Can you share how you try to maintain eating a healthy diet?
0: It's kind of been a journey for me when it comes to the whole diet thing because there's just so many differing opinions and thoughts <laughs> out there. And that can be really tricky. It, it's funny because when I was first diagnosed, I mean, obviously I was young, and so my parents were doing a lot of research and and they man, they had me taking all kinds of supplements and trying different diets in hopes that it would maybe like help my MS and and i and obviously those those things didn't last very long but it really shows like the desire that people have to like do whatever they can in their control to help manage yeah. their ms and um which i don't blame them and so it's just kind of been this interesting journey even for me i mean i've always, I, i'm i'm a woman so i know i've always struggled with body image anyways and then trying to manage ms and figuring out like what's the best thing for me and so i've tried everything out there from whole 30 to Intermittent fasting to gluten free, dairy free, so it's it's just a, been a journey of what at the end of the day, what is something that's sustainable that I can stick mm-hmm. with, and then also have some flexibility too. And so I try to do like eighty percent eat clean because it does make mm-hmm. me feel better, but it's just anecdotal for me because I'm I know I I've learned to listen to my body and what makes me feel good, and I think that that's kind of key too. Like we are all on our own journeys and and being aware of our bodies and what. From physically, like exercise, what makes me feel good, to what are the foods I'm putting in my body that make me feel good, and sometimes that's chocolate cake. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, you brought, so you brought up all of these kind of confusing diets, and that's what I hear a lot from people too. So when I'm working with individuals. There's a lot of diet information out there and it can be very confusing and people can have really strong opinions. Do you sort of find that also to be true for you? And then how have you navigated through all of that? How have you tried to sift through that information? And like you said, how have you tried to find the pattern that works best for you?
0: I can't tell you how many times I've received messages from people to like do this diet or try these supplements to help cure my disease or, you know, maybe their intentions were good, but it can be really frustrating and confusing, especially for newly diagnosed people. Again, like we're just, what can I do that I can have control over? And it's so interesting because I have the exercise part down, like I've got that, but when it comes to eating patterns and all the different opinions, it's hard. And Mm -hmm. I guess this is kind of where I want to like base it more on science and the reality of, of that sustainability part. Um, <laughs> I think I've realized I'm really stubborn and I'm really averse to restriction because I've tried, like I said, I've tried whole 30, but it was really like whole five. Cause I just couldn't stick to such restriction and I've tried them all. And, you know, I think what I've found too, that it's partnered with a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and discouragement. Which have their own implications of just stress management and and mental health, and so I'm really thankful to work for this National MS Society because we are funding a lot of research when it comes to diet because that is a really that is a really big piece to really understanding like what is the science behind how these diets impact somebody's disease progression or symptom management, and I think there is something to be said to a healthy diet and how how it can actually help maybe minimize MS symptoms, things like that. And so I'm really excited to see what we continue to learn, but I will say, refer to professionals. You know, if you really are wanting to change up your diet or do you have actual allergies to gluten or whatever, I always say like, go seek out a registered dietitian to really help you make some of those decisions. Refer to the experts, I guess, is my, my thought (laughs) if I don't know it.
1: (laughs) Agreed. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, you know, in, in not just for MS, but even if you were newly diagnosed with diabetes or something, you'd want to work with a registered dietitian or somebody who really knew how to you know, what diet would be best, but also how to stick to that and the motivation. You brought up the idea of guilt and shame, mm-hmm. and so I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that if mental health providers are listening to this and they're working with somebody who are having some of those feelings of guilt or shame or feeling like they have to stick to this diet because it's the thing that's going to cure their MS or keep symptoms from progressing or that kind of thing. Do you have any advice on that front? What number one, what brought up those symptoms for you and, you know, what has helped you sort of balance the wanting to eat healthy, that sort of 80% eating clean, but Mm -hmm. also allowing you to have a little bit of some flexibility.
0: One of the things that's just kind of been like this resonating mantra that I tell others and should continue to tell to myself is just to, to, to give myself grace when I've learned to give myself grace in being okay with saying no or resting or modifying an exercise to in enjoying a meal, because I'm going to be hanging out with friends. Like, I think when I've learned to give myself grace, I'm just kinder to myself and allowing myself to have some flexibility in that. And I think that that's really important to give ourselves permission. I think, I don't know, living with MS sometimes can be really tricky because a lot of the things people can't see like those symptoms, a lot of our symptoms are invisible. And so we're constantly working so hard to just maybe have this front of like, everything's fine. I'm, I'm,
1: Mm.
0: you know, doing fine. And, and so I think sometimes it's, it's okay to give ourselves permission or, or share, like give yourself permission to be flexible, like, I don't know, I think I've also learned even in the last couple of years with this pandemic, just the importance of that social aspect. Often when you are socializing, you're enjoying a meal together. And yeah. if, if something is so restrictive that brings you sh- guilt and shame, I just, it's just really, really, that just is really detrimental. And MS is such an isolating disease in itself that I think it's okay to give yourself permission to enjoy and, and be have some flexibility.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's that restrictive side that sometimes people get trapped into maybe. And then I think the other side is when you want to eat healthy, eating healthy takes some work. You might have to cook something for it to be healthy, or you might have to chop up vegetables or all those kinds of things that take work. And I'm wondering if that's true for you what MS symptoms might be getting in the way of healthy eating, or when you're feeling fatigued and you just want to like have a bowl of cereal instead of eating the salad, you know, what are the things that get in the way and how have you managed those kinds of things?
0: Yeah. I think for me, fatigue and then leg pain are two of my bigger symptoms that I experience, and even cognitive challenges from like, just feeling mentally foggy to just, just mentally not like being able to, I don't know. By the end of the day, I'm just really spent. And so I often try to take advantage of a Sunday when I might have more energy and do a little bit of shopping and meal prepping. If Mm -hmm. I have the energy to do that, because then on those days when I am feeling more fatigued, I already have something that I can make a healthy choice in my fridge that I can just pop in the microwave. I'm very thankful. My husband is so Helpful, and I think we've been married for ten years, and I've learned to communicate when I'm not having a good day, and I think mm-hmm. that's really important for people living with MS. Unless we tell the people around us that we need help, and it's okay to ask for help, they may not know, and they may think like, "Why are you being lazy? Why are you laying on the couch?" But in reality, I'm I'm having a really hard day, and mm-hmm. I'm fatigued. Whether that's like, "Hey, can we just eat out tonight?" or "Do you mind cooking?" One of the other things that we've actually done, and, and this is obviously sometimes cost prohibitive, but we do some of the, the meals that get shipped to you that are somewhat not pre-prepped but and that yeah. helps too, because I don't have to go grocery shopping and all the ingredients are already there and I just have to cook it up in like 30 minutes. So those really help me make healthy choices.
1: Yeah, that's great. There's a individual that I worked with recently at a Can Do event who said that she found one of those online uh, meal preps, but it was fully put together meals. So all she had to do was like throw it in the oven or throw it in the microwave. And even though that might be cost prohibitive for many people, even on sort of a fixed income, she was able to do that and found one that was, she was able to afford. Are there other resources that you think would be helpful for people to know about either through the MS Society or other organizations?
0: Well, I do know that the National MS Society um, has this really great virtual program called Pathways to Wellness MS for Nutrition. And it's just this on-demand program where we talk a lot about what is research saying right now with diet? What are some practical things we can do? Whether that's like, how do you shop in a grocery store to how do you read a nutrition label? Just to practical, like comprehensive things, like what does it look like to have that social life and having flexibility? And so I highly encourage taking a look at that resource. Cause there's just a lot of good information, good, credible information, but I'm, I'm a huge proponent of the National Lama site. It's just a credible place to go to. One of the things they mentioned, even in that program was like find pre-chopped veggies, you know, if fine motor skills are a challenge for you, like grab those pre-chopped veggies. Cause that can be super helpful too. Those are a couple of ideas for resources that I can think of.
1: Yeah, that's great. I, I think sometimes for myself too, I, when I'm working with somebody, I, I often encourage them to see an occupational therapist too, because they might have tools that I didn't know about, you didn't know about, or that they can point you to in terms that would be, make it easier if you're having fine motor issues or even just how to set up the kitchen differently so that it, it's less energy or it's more energy efficient. If people want to follow the work that you're doing either through the MS Society or your YouTube channel, where can people find you?
0: I, I teach a live class that can be done seated or standing on Facebook. If you just look up, keep moving with Emily, you should be able to find it as well as on YouTube. I have over hundred YouTube videos that for all levels of ability, if you want something higher intensity or seated, like I said, I really want to make sure that people for all levels of ability can, can move. And so that's super fun. I'm also on Instagram. So those are some places where you can
1: find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about uh, diet and nutrition, sharing your resources, and I will let everybody know where to find you.
0: Great. Thank you so much for letting me join you.
1: Remember, if you're a mental health provider and would like continuing education credits for listening to this episode, please head over to findempathy.com/learn. This next interview is with Mona Bostic, a dietitian specializing in MS. We start the interview with Mona with her sharing why she believes it's important to assess nutritional status in people living with multiple sclerosis. Thank you, Mona, for being here. I wanted to talk to you about diet and nutrition. We've had many conversations in the past about these topics. From your perspective, why do you think it's important to assess nutrition status?
2: Well, nutrition, the nutrition status of anybody has an impact on our overall health. At present, it is not something that is broadly considered in the interdisciplinary care of someone living with multiple sclerosis. And because we know that comorbidity status has such an impact on health outcomes in living with multiple sclerosis, and nutrition status has is, is very significant in how one lives with these comorbidities, like hypertension, um, diabetes, blood fats, cardiovascular disease, things of that sort, that food can absolutely have an impact on food choices and, and daily behaviors can have an impact on. That's why I believe, I believe nutrition status is an important part of one's health picture. And it's currently not being ascertained in the MS patient broadly. Mm -hmm.
1: I I don't think that diet is talked about, I mean, it's sometimes talked about in the, in the neurologist office, but it's, it's not given a lot of space, but there is a lot of interest in diet and nutrition among people that are living with MS. And there's lots of different diets out there in air quotes, MS diets that either could be very beneficial, but then there's also some that are very restrictive. Do you mind telling us a little bit about what are some of those diets that many people look into and what do we know about them? What do we still need to figure out about them? So yes, I'm, I'm happy you also use the phrase air quotes
2: because <laughs> I use air quotes a lot. There are many, many diets in air quotes, protocols and regimens, however you wanna phrase that, that are targeted at people with chronic disease, specifically multiple sclerosis. Many of them are low carbohydrate in nature, and that is a spectrum from calling it low carb all the way up to something called ketogenic diet, which is a therapeutic intervention in children with epilepsy who are not responding to medication. Outside of that limited area, limited scope, it doesn't really have a practical application broadly. Another type of uh, diet that's promoted to people with multiple sclerosis is the broad spectrum of paleolithic type diets, the most uh, famous or most uh, widely known one is going to be the Walls protocol. And I say the Walls protocol, there are actually a number of different versions of the Walls protocol, and each one has different levels. So it's not like just one thing it's like, I don't know if I can say this. <laughs> I, I like to think of it as the uh, seven, la- seven, the layers of hell, right? Of each, <laughs> each level becomes more arduous and more challenging than the one that preceded it. And so it's all, it's very restrictive and both the low carb ketogenic, paleolithic dietary approaches encourage you to eliminate and avoid large swaths of foods from your diet, which can have a very negative impact on your nutrient profile that you're taking in. The people who typically promote this will also offer to sell you supplements to replace those nutrients that they themselves state they believe to be important, but they just prefer you to get them from supplements for some reason. The other and most recent to the table, if you will, is intermittent fasting. And it's not so much about the foods that you eat, it's about the way they're distributed during the day. So. Instead of eating when you might be hungry, stopping when you might be full and repeating that throughout the day, you you have a very narrow window of time during which you consume foods. And then for the remainder of that time, you consume nothing. As to the efficacy of any of these approaches, I've yet to find anybody who has endured one of these air quote diets at at the end of which they don't have multiple sclerosis.
1: Yeah. Uh, I did a, a small stent of looking at different types of diet in conjunction with things like cognition and mood and fatigue and these kinds of symptoms. And there's still a lot that needs to be done with diet research, right? I, I mean, there's been very few randomized clinical control trials looking at diet and it becomes very complex very quickly. Like the amount of each type of food and how one person consumes food, it might be different than somebody else. And so having one specific diet that's supposed to be applied to everyone seems to me to be maybe simplifying it. Yes, it's oversimplifying it.
2: And as Mm -hmm. you say, nutrition research is one area of research that is extremely complex. It's very difficult to find a large number of people who are willing to say for an extended period of time, eat only what you tell them to eat, when you tell them to eat it, and the quantity you tell them to eat it regardless. Because if you're gonna say study a medicine's impact on someone, you dose the medication for a period of time and you study the results. If you're talking about nutrition, that's gonna take a large body of people who are willing to undergo that. And then there are ethical um, issues of if it doesn't, if that study turns out, if that intervention turns out to have a negative uh, impact on the health. So. I'm sure you could speak to a researcher who could talk to you about the very complex um, difficulties, challenges in studying nutrition, broadly speaking, and uh, the studies that have been done on diet as it relates to MS, the measures, the outcome measures have largely been patient report, not so much clinical evidence, MRI, mm-hmm. you know, evidence of MRI, fewer lesions or reversal of disease on as as evidenced by clinical benchmarks.
1: I want to go back a few steps. If somebody with MS comes to work with you as a dietitian, what are some of the things that you're looking for? And are there any general recommendations that are typical for the people that you work with?
2: I like to meet people where they are. So generally I ask what you know or what you believe, how do you, what are you currently doing? What, and then why are you doing that? I find that some people <clears throat> may have uh, undertaken one of these protocols with the belief that it's going to improve. And then I'm gonna air quote here, heal, beat or reverse their disease, which is a vague verb that a lot of times Dr. Google uses to suggest some positive health outcome. Um, And so I find that there are people who have undertaken these with the expectation that there's going to be some benefit health benefit when, and when they've come to see me, it's largely because they have not had that expected health benefit and are struggling. And then they may also be dealing with irregular blood sugars or hypertension, something else that's getting in the way that, or the fact that these uh, dietary rules or restrictions they've undertaken, the family's not really. Uh, on board with that. So they're having to cook, prepare more than one meal at any given mealtime, which has become additionally challenging for things like fatigue or the budget or things that one didn't really anticipate being an issue when they started taking, you know, practicing the dietary intervention that they were, that they undertook.
1: I want to also go back to something you said earlier, which was, you know, that the, some of these comorbid conditions like high blood pressure, can have an influence on health outcomes in MS, how how does diet play a role with some of those comorbid conditions? So the the research
2: suggests that having an comorbid people with MS who have additional chronic illnesses, comorbid conditions like hypertension, like um, type two diabetes, cardiovascular disease, particularly these comorbid conditions that are not well-managed go more quickly to disability and have a lower quality of life. Part of how those comorbid conditions are managed are with therapeutic diet, diet interventions. For say, for example, with hypertension, a lower sodium uh, diet or with cardiovascular disease, one that seeks to limit or avoid saturated fats. And all of this is along with other health promoting behaviors like exercise, Um, managing your stress and, you know, general wellness practices, but food does play a role in uh, managing those conditions well, or if one doesn't have one, food choices plays a role in not getting one of those comorbid health conditions.
1: Okay, great. And so for some of those diets that are a little bit more strict or that are are pretty restrictive, you mentioned that there was aspects of them that could be unhealthy, where you're removing certain nutrients from the diet because they're so restrictive, but are there other ways that those diets can be unhealthy? And conversely, are there, are there any times when those diets or any parts of those diets are beneficial?
2: I have myself as a nutrition professional, I've not encountered a way that those air quote diets can be beneficial. I just haven't. The the way that they, in additional, excuse me, in addition to the physical or the impact that those approaches can have on physical health by restricting the uh, nutrients from your intake, which means you might become deficient in something, which is not gonna contribute well to your health. uh, There's also a um, mental health impact on, um, starting with expectations. As I mentioned, sometimes when people come to see me, it's because They've not, uh, they've not realized the expectations that they were hoping for when they began to eat in a particular way. They, were, they had certain expectations. And from my perspective, those are unrealistic expectations, but from their perspective, you know, they were uh, led to believe that eating in this way is not only beneficial, but is actually necessary. That <laughs> by doing this, you're going to improve your health. And by not doing this, you are causing a detriment to your health. So these unrealistic expectations set someone up for failure because the, and I'm going to use the word diet culture is a Mm -hmm. term that broadly applies to whether you're trying to um, change your weight or your body shape to say fit into a bikini. And if that doesn't work, it's your fault. It's not Mm -hmm. the diet's fault. The same, same thing applies to, if you're uh, using food to uh, navigate your health and try to heal, beat, or reverse A disease that is not known to have a cause or a cure, uh, if you're trying to change that with food and it doesn't work, it's not the diet's fault. It's your fault for not having done, uh, not having followed the rules strictly enough or adhered tightly enough. And that word compliance comes in. And uh, if you, it's your fault for not having been adequately compliant. And that's just, that's just untrue. And -hmm. that can have a negative, obviously a negative health uh, impact on your mental health.
1: Absolutely. And I love that you brought up mental health. What are some of the emotional reasons, at least from your perspective, that you see people getting pulled into these more restrictive diets? Well, anxiety. So if you've been
2: diagnosed with a life changing health condition, you've got anxiety, right? All of a Mm -hmm. sudden, what (laughs) does this mean? It's very anxiety causing to have this. And then with anxiety being um, something that is known to occur frequently in people with MS, you've got double reasons for anxiety. And Dr. Google is out there suggesting to you that if you do X, Y, and Z with your food, then you can, quote, heal, beat, or reverse your um, disease condition, your disease state. You began to put a lot of uh, energy and hope, or at least some people do, some people can, be susceptible to putting a lot of energy or hope into these food rules. And then it kind of leads to uh, an obsession, obsessive type relationship with the food rules. You know, you've become to get more and more strict and you start following uh, words like clean food, clean eating begin to show up in your vocabulary. And that can not only lead to those physical consequences I mentioned before, but you begin to uh, practice social isolation and, um, you, you lose touch with your that intuitive eating behavior that you were born with. We were all designed, we were born as intuitive eaters, but when we start p- stop paying attention to our intuitive nature and begin to only pay attention to these food rules, it can lead to malnutrition. And mm-hmm. then of course, disordered eating, what I just described as essentially orthorexia, but then it can also, by being very restrictive, uh, restrictive eating is known to be a, um, a predictor of binge eating, which is another type of disordered eating practice, when you so restrict yourself from eating such a large quantity of foods, at some point that dam's going to break, and you're going to res- you know go in and overeat. Some people mm-hmm. uh, turn to binge eating, whether it's uh, conscious or not. So, mm-hmm. and that has its own mental health concerns.
1: Absolutely. You know, I think um, as a mental health professional, one of the things that I try to do is hear people's thoughts about different topics, in this in this case, eating, and try to figure out what areas of those thoughts are true and what areas of those thoughts maybe don't have as much evidence behind them, and try to help the person, sort of guide that person into challenging any negative thoughts, either about themselves, their behavior, or the world, to become not only mentally stronger, but also to help them guide their own behavior. Where do you think mental health providers can find accurate information about diet and nutrition for people with MS?
2: That's an excellent question. Right now, there's not a uh, wealth of knowledge about specifically nutrition and multiple sclerosis, because as I say, Dr. Google, and I'm using that term loosely to provide, to refer to sort of alternative health practitioners who are driving the conversation. There's not been any, and I like to make the distinction of conventional medicine approach to an unconventional medicine approach. And somehow or other conventional practitioners have gotten the bad rap that we don't address the problem. So they go to the unconventional practitioners. And that is an umbrella that includes functional, integrative, alternative, complementary, holistic, etc., cetera. And a lot of these unconventional approaches to medicine and nutrition specifically have kind of co-opted and they have inserted an unconventional approach to eating with multiple sclerosis. I would argue that because there's been a lack of a conventional approach that's been well-founded, well-discussed and well-presented, well-articulated It's that absence of that that has led to the uh, the unconventional approach that has kind of been driving that conversation. It is my hope that that will change and that there will be more of a conventional voice to address the questions around nutrition. Because the one thing that I would say when people ask me, what is the best way to eat with multiple sclerosis is to don't eat for multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, eating well does not mean something different because you have multiple sclerosis. It might be more difficult because you have multiple sclerosis because of symptoms that may interfere, but your nutrition needs have not changed because you have multiple sclerosis. And so it's gonna be, it's the same boring, unsexy, unflashy <laughs> stuff that applies to 75% of the people in our country who don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. So start there. You know, If you're yeah. not eating enough vegetables, eat more color on your plate. So um, simple stuff.
1: Yeah. What are some other of those kind of healthy eating tips that are unsexy, but remain true (laughs) throughout the years?
2: Yeah. Usually it's the unsexy stuff that remains true. And that's because Dr. Google has an advertising budget to promote all of his or her ideas. Uh, The basic unsexy and flashy stuff doesn't. And that's largely because the only beneficiary is you is the person who's eating that. And that's going to be, as I said, um, including, A lot of colorful plant foods and um, variety matters. It's once, you might've heard the term superfood that's Mm -hmm. tossed around, it's a marketing term and it doesn't really have any clinical meaning, but variety of colors will make sure that you bring as much diversity of nutrients to your plate as you can. Uh, Eating whole grains and beans and legumes are all good for your body. That's something that a lot of these diets encourage you to avoid, but they're actually quite good for your body, especially for your gut nuts and seeds, lean protein. Again, lean protein variety matters. So lean protein can be chicken or it can be fish or it can be lean red meats. Um, And then heart healthy unsaturated fats like avocado, omega-3s, mono and polyunsaturated fatty acids. And then low fat calcium foods. A lot of people have decided because Dr. Google has suggested that dairy is somehow bad for people with multiple sclerosis they've removed one of the most uh, convenient sources of calcium from their eating pattern. And bone strength is really important in this population because people with MS are at a higher risk for fractures. So I encourage you, if you have decided for any reason to abstain from dairy products, make sure you get your calcium some other way. The only thing that we have to limit or avoid really, this is broadly speaking, is the salt, the added sugars, saturated fats, And then limit or avoid those highly refined vending machine type foods, you know, Mm,
1: mm -hmm. Uh,
2: and then avoid trans fats entirely. That's the whole unsexy ballgame right there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's great. Um, And you mentioned though, you know, uh, that there are things, the symptoms of MS that get in the way of healthy eating. And what do you see? What are those symptoms? And do you have any sort of quick tips or strategies that people can use when those symptoms are getting in the way of their eating?
2: Yes. I like to think of that Forrest Gump quote. It's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And that's kind of what it's like waking up every day with MS. You're not quite sure how MS is going to show up in your day, any given day. So because after a while, you begin to understand what your particular challenges are. But things like pain, fatigue, cognitive challenges can all get in the way of either planning, preparing, or sometimes eating food. So whatever your challenges are, planning is the big part for that. So no, if, if pain and fatigue are a f- part of your day, every day, building around that, planning around that, having stuff on hand that is easy to prepare and doesn't require very laborious, lots of chop and slice and dice and plus cooking, plus you know, very simple things to have on hand and, and prepare to kind of work around your, your symptoms. Uh, And it might mean working, doing some um, extra, using some energy on the weekend, investing some energy on the weekend so that you don't have to use that energy as much during the week. Maybe it means asking for help. Maybe it means asking your spouse to help you find the recipes or just, you know, create the plan, or maybe have that person help you with the shopping or somehow address one of your pain points. So if fatigue is an issue, have somebody help you with the parts that are fatiguing whatever the problem is, whatever the symptom is, planning is going to be a big part of addressing that challenge.
1: When do you think it's important for a mental health provider who's working with somebody with MS or even, you know, any sort of medical provider who's working with somebody that has MS, when is it time to go see a dietitian? If you're working with someone and you've noticed that
2: they've undertaken some eating protocol or air quote diet, or something that you begin to suspect is not serving their greater interests. And you've asked them what their purpose behind that. And if you feel as though their uh, expectations are unrealistic, it might be uh, a really good idea to refer to a dietitian. Alternatively, if you have a a person who is just saying that that's a big anxiety for them, they're newly diagnosed and they think they are wondering, is that something that they should undertake because of this new diagnosis? I would encourage you to refer to a dietitian. A lot of what I do initially is myth busting and helping people to find out where they can get credible information and what is credible information. What does that look like, you know, uh, and how to interpret these studies that they see on the internet and stuff. So someone that can help them make those choices in a more informed way, I think would be um, a really good idea.
1: And is there anything else that you think would be important for a mental health provider to know about? I, I know there's lots of topics, but yeah. about uh, diet that I haven't asked you about.
2: I mentioned the orthorexia or binge eating or anxiety, fear around food, but also the role that it plays in isolating. So even if they do not present as somebody who's fearful or anxious around food, but if they if they're having to skip the girls' night out or the birthday party or you know, going back to the ball game or whatever, because the, the clean foods won't be available there or the, the f- whatever the air quote need of food is, if it's preventing them from um, participating in social engagement, that's going to be a, as I'm sure, you know, a big problem. And there's just no, there's just no need for that from a nutrition standpoint, as it relates to MS.
1: That's very helpful. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about diet and nutrition. Cause I know this is a huge topic for people with MS. It comes up in my work with people all the time. And so I think having some really credible information out there is, is very helpful. If, if people wanna get in touch with you or wanna learn more about the work that you do, where can they find you? I'm on the internet. I can be found at msbytes.com. I'm on
2: Instagram, also at msbytes. Uh, that would be ms underscore
1: bytes. And yeah, so that's where you can find me. Remember, if you're a mental health provider that specializes in health populations like multiple sclerosis and more, please head over to findempathy.com and click on get listed. We would love to list your practice in our directory and being listed is free. We're trying to help families and people living with chronic or acute medical conditions find providers like you. In our final interview, we hear from Dr. Ellen Mowry. Dr. Mowry starts the interview by sharing why she was interested in diet research and how she got started.
3: My initial work related to dietary health was looking at vitamin D and vitamin D deficiency and how that related to outcomes for people with MS. And our clinical trial is currently being analyzed to evaluate if supplementation with vitamin D in people with known MS is helpful but also to think about other aspects of lifestyle management that might relate to outcomes for people with MS. And of course, diet is a major component of lifestyle. And therefore, I became interested in that. And, you know, we've done a a number of different things from a clinical trial standpoint. Our pilot trials have really focused on what are called fasting style diets in people with MS.
1: I know diet is a huge buzzword in the MS community, there's lots of blog articles about diet. Just from your perspective as a neurologist and as a researcher, why is diet or nutrition? Can you give me a little bit more information about why diet and nutrition is important thing to consider for people with MS?
3: Yeah, it's really interesting because I think it's a topic that people with MS have asked for research on for a number of years, and it's definitely become of more interest to the research community. in in recent years. So sometimes we tend to be a little behind behind the requests. But I think um, for me, the um, interesting parts about diet and MS come from the fact that we're learning more and more that illnesses other than MS that are related to the health of our diet, such as diabetes or high blood pressure, high cholesterol, things like that, are actually linked with worse outcomes for people with multiple sclerosis. So people who have those kind of illnesses are more likely to have impairments in their neurologic exam or performance of neurologic tasks and show accelerated shrinkage of the brain over time and therefore are much more likely to have bad long-term outcomes from their MS. Whether that means that um, those conditions are causing the MS itself to be worse, or they're just causing extra damage to the brain, which leaves everybody vulnerable. But especially if you already have an illness that's causing injuries to the brain, like MS, I don't think we know yet, but regardless, it's clear that trying to prevent illnesses like those I just described may be a great way to complement MS medications in improving long-term outlook for people living with the disease.
1: And one of my goals with this interview is to get a little bit more information about what research has been going on and what we know. But before I dive into those questions, can you tell me a little bit about what makes diet research difficult? What makes it challenging?
3: <laughs> yeah, it's
1: really tricky, actually. You know,
3: the first thing is to settle on what what diet should you study, right? When I first became interested in this, we, I did a Google search essentially and found I think over 13 million hits of if you typed in diet and multiple sclerosis and the top three hits each claim to have the diet for MS, but they were all different or slightly different. And so, you know, what is the diet for MS? It's really difficult to understand because the research looking at types of diets or components of diets is not always of the highest quality the gold standard ways that we ask people about the foods they're eating are really labor and time intensive. And so there haven't been enormous studies that use that kind of gold standard that can then point to like, aha, this is definitely the right kind of diet or it's everything doesn't matter, except if you eat, you know, these three foods or, or whatever. And so we're relying on ways of interviewing people that aren't really gold standard, right? Like, and so they may make mistakes. And when you make those mistakes, then your conclusions of the study may not be completely accurate. It's hard to isolate components of the diet. If there's a micronutrient, like folate, (laughs) that's present Mm -hmm. in various foods. Like how do you, how do you isolate the impacts of folate from the impacts of food that, uh, or other nutrients in the foods that also have folate, right? So what's the cause and is it, is it just a bystander when you're looking at an association between, say, a micronutrient or a component and an outcome? So it's just really hard to study. And then when you want to design your trial, therefore, <laughs> which diet should you choose? And, and then what, you know, what's the dose of the diet? Like how much, how much diet or dietary component or like level of adherence would you need to achieve in order to study it well and what outcomes are relevant, you know, traditional MS trials, look at things like relapses and new MS spots or lesions on the brain or disability progression. Those are ordinarily like long and expensive, you know, how do you, how do you conduct that with diet? And then how do you deliver the dietary intervention? And are you going to do a traditional controlled feeding trial where people come and eat all their meals in a center. And that will actually change the kinds of outcomes that you can do because that's expensive and not mm-hmm. logistically easy. So now you're talking about outcomes that are measured over a short-term if you're gonna do that. Um, so it's just it's just really tricky and challenging to do for sure. And then translation of any trial to the real world how do you encourage people once you discover that a certain pattern of eating is healthy? How do you actually incite that behavior change? I think is also a really big stumbling block in the um, MS world.
1: Right. I, I think I've heard you say that if you do a feeding s- study, for example, that you might get that changes that change for a while, but if people don't stick to it, you maybe aren't going to get the same outcomes over time. Is that accurate? Definitely,
3: yeah. And that's something we experienced in a pilot trial we had that was funded by the National MS Society. You know, We saw that when we were providing foods to people, according to the protocol, they were doing well, but it was hard for people to maintain once that um, level of support decreased.
1: And you had mentioned that you Googled some diets. What are some of those common MS diets? Or if you don't want to name them, can you give a sort of broad strokes overview of what do those... MS style diets usually entail.
3: Yeah, well, there are a lot of different, different things people read on the internet. A lot of things to say like anti-inflammatory or other diets. I might focus the discussion a bit on recent diets that people have evaluated in a little bit more detail to sort of address that comment. A recent publication, for example, compared what's called the WALS protocol and the SWANK Mm -hmm. protocol. So the WALS protocol is a modified paleolithic diet, and uh, the SWANK protocol is a low saturated fat diet. And, you know, both groups of people, uh, so the trial is set up like a classic study or randomized by a flip of a coin to one or the other. And in the end, both groups really showed an improvement in many measures of fatigue, and so, you know, you could try to pick apart through secondary endpoints whether one was better than the other. But in the end, they both did better. There have been some studies of uh, Mediterranean style diet, which showed pretty good uptick and again, like reductions in fatigue. Um, mm-hmm. Our own fasting style uh, diet study, where people either ate like a regular amount of calories or did either intermittent calorie restriction, so a lot of calories down for a couple of days a week, or what we call continuous calorie restriction, where they had a little bit less food every day than they would have at, at the beginning of the study, showed improvements in emotional well being on the functional assessment and MS scale. You know, what I see when I think about all these diets is <laughs> they <laughs> often impact on quality of life indicators. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's not so surprising, right? I think, you know, a lot of people who enter are eating more traditional Western-style diets that aren't very healthy for us. Yeah. But, you know, as a society, we tend to consume a lot of processed foods, maybe a carb-heavy, really different and distinct than any of the, the diets we we just talked about. And so, it doesn't seem surprising to me that people feel better when they're eating healthier but I don't think that any of those studies has shown that like, Oh, you have to do this. Absolutely. Hands down. It's modified paleo. You know, you must (laughs) do low saturated fat. I don't think that we've had a study that really discerns that one of those dietary patterns is the
1: MS diet. Uh,
3: So I think that the jury's still out on that.
1: And for all of those different style diets that you just named, are there any concerns that you have in terms of that they are unhealthy or do you feel like all of them are generally, if somebody were to choose one of them, that they're generally healthy?
3: Yeah. I mean, I don't know that the, like that has been studied in huge, huge detail across the diets and in people with MS for a long period of time. And there are always specific things that are relevant to an individual person that may not be relevant to everyone. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, for example, in the swank diet, for example, there have been some vitamin deficiencies that may develop in people following that particular diet. I've seen reports of some vitamins and, for example, being a little bit low. In general, I would say my experience though, as a mm-hmm. clinician is that like people trying to follow these dietary patterns, one or the other, generally end up eating more healthy foods than they were before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, usually, I, I usually I think it's actually moving in the direction of, of more healthy rather than than less healthy.
1: Again, this is probably not been studied, but from your experience, are there any either positive or negative emotional outcomes for sticking to any of these types of diets?
3: Well, I think sometimes patients find that if they're making dietary changes and they live with other people, it can be a little bit isolating for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's an interesting experience um, that people have. You know, I think it's also, we all have to be careful about how um, strict we are Mm
1: -hmm. and how
3: punitive we are, I think, towards ourselves in trying to be the perfect patient, right. Regardless of what our health circumstances are, you know, occasionally you find people who exert, feel like they have to exert a lot of control and it becomes, it starts taking over their life instead of being Mm -hmm. a part of their way of being. So I think that that is, um, can be an issue for some people.
1: Okay. That's great. And going back to the different types of diets, I know diet research is behind where people wanted it to be and probably where you want it to be. If you can think of next steps or what information we don't have or things that need to be answered, where are the gaps in the research?
3: You know, I really advocate for ways to help um, people with MS generally make behavior changes that we know to be consistent with overall health. So I'm less bothered by the notion that we need to tease apart micro differences between these lifestyle patterns and more interested in understanding how do we help people broadly, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but especially with MS or illnesses that are accelerating damage to the nervous system to make lifestyle changes that are just kind of globally healthy, you know, where Mm -hmm. you don't need to know if your micronutrient ratio is like plus or minus one cup of X type of vegetables, that sort of thing. I think we can see that eating healthy is difficult for a lot of people mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons In people with MS, I think it's possible that the relatively higher degree of mood comorbidities such as depression and anxiety, as well as potentially fatigue could. Could make it even more difficult to follow a healthy pattern or to make a behavior change. And so I think that the next steps really should be to figure out, well, how can we help people with MS modify their diet to just be sensibly healthy, right? (laughs) Which for my patients, I usually talk to them about something along the spectrum of the Mediterranean style diet, right? Like Mm -hmm. how can we make sure you're eating plenty of fruits and vegetables? How can we make sure you're not eating a ton of packaged or processed foods, that sort of thing. And so I think behavior change is uh, maybe the, the biggest next step. And it's probably not limited to people with MS, but again, they may have extra challenges that make that change even more difficult.
1: Yeah, and I wanted to ask about those extra challenges. I've heard from people things like fatigue gets in the way of them cooking every day. Do you, from your clinical experience, cause I don't think this has been studied much in research from your clinical experience. Are there other MS symptoms that you think get in the way?
3: Yeah, I think, um, as you mentioned, fatigue certainly can, and whether again, that's because of MS specifically or insufficient sleep, right. Which we know <laughs> can lead to like poor decisions surrounding food choices in general, um, again, people with MS much higher likelihood of having depression or anxiety, which I do mm-hmm. think influence patterns of eating. And it often kind of like snowballs, right? Like one thing cycles into, the, into other. the other. So exactly. So we know that as mentioned, some of these diets, for example, improved fatigue or improved emotional well-being. So Like, where do you cut in to actually like (laughs) Uh um, sort of stop that cycle and the vicious feedback loop that it kind of invokes can definitely be a challenge. Uh, But I especially think for mental health providers, there's a really clear role in helping to think about how we can help people with MS manage, for example, mood, manage sleep patterns, insomnia, and things like that, and improve the quality of to maximize the ableness of our patients,
1: the mm-hmm. ability
3: of our patients to focus on their nutrition choices.
1: Absolutely. I agree a hundred percent, although I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one final question I would say, well, I, I have two final questions. One is when do you think a therapist or a mental health provider should refer back to the patient's neurologist or a dietitian if they have questions around food?
3: Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, even for neurologists, we're not really trained fully in nutrition, or as is a problem for many of my patients in managing the complications of carrying extra weight, for example. So I think it's in general appropriate for uh, a mental health provider to refer back to the neurologist, but even neurologists may not be the most providers to do a deep dive on Mm -hmm. improving someone's nutrition. So I often will refer to a nutritionist in somebody who's eager to make lifestyle changes or increasingly when relevant to an obesity medicine specialist, where mm. there they understand that lifestyle is not just about simple things like calories in and calories out, but about whole um, evaluations of a person's risk factors and other factors that influence lifestyle choices and, and just genetics, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And integrating all of those things into helping people make positive and sustained lifestyle changes. So I think it does take a community, but even as a clinician, uh, as a neurologist, I try really hard not to overstep my bounds you know, mm-hmm. in trying to take leadership in advising people on their on their health changes in this regard. I think people who really need to make the biggest changes probably do deserve more professional attention with a nutritionist and sometimes with an obesity medicine specialist
1: that's great that's great advice and my final question to you is you had mentioned that you see diet as kind of a complement or all these lifestyle factors as a complement to ms medication and i just wondered if you could expand on that a little bit there are many patients that i've met with who want to try lifestyle factors as the main way of managing their ms um you know, many times I have conversations with them uh, similar to what you mentioned that they may, these may improve outcomes, but they don't necessarily control MS. Can you speak to that a little bit more? Yeah, definitely. I've been working with people
3: with MS long enough to remember when medications for MS, disease modifying therapies were not the mainstay of treatment. And, you know, those individuals who didn't have treatments available, tried all sorts of lifestyle and other, things to manage their MS, and it, it didn't work. We see that in the modern treatment era, disability related to MS has gone down a lot. People are at much lower risk of reaching various types of disability over time than they were historically. And it may not all be the medications, of course, but I think that they play a big role, particularly for people who have relapsing uh, forms of multiple sclerosis, which is what the approved medications for MS target. There many, many studies have shown that the best time to make an impact on a long, the long-term prognosis of somebody with MS in regards to using these therapy is early in the course. So if you wait until a lot of MS activity has occurred, then that's associated with worst long-term outcome. So that seems to be, in my opinion, like the precisely the time somebody is newly diagnosed where they often want to see if they can just use lifestyle, but it's probably the most critical time to make sure they're, they are pursuing, if they have a relapsing form of disease an actual MS therapy, where do I think that the diet and other lifestyle um, factors probably make the biggest role is in helping to prevent injury to the brain tissue itself. So we know that in people with MS, disability comes from sustained and ongoing injury to the underlying nerve wires in the brain. And that can come ultimately from an attack, a relapse of MS, or because that nerve wire is vulnerable, even if it was not injured primarily in an attack, to kind of dying off early. And we know that even in people without MS, not having diabetes and high blood pressure, not having obesity and things like that is linked with less death of neurons as we age. So I really think that these, that improving on lifestyle through diet, we haven't talked about exercise and (laughs) sleep too much, but all these factors of lifestyle are probably just keeping our nervous systems more healthy in general. But if you live with MS or another illness, that's also causing insults to the nervous system. It's like a two hit kind of a thing. And so we want to try to remove the MS hit by using the MS treatments. And we want to remove any unhealthy lifestyle hits by improving those aspects of lifestyle, including diet.
1: Well, thank you so much. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about all these factors and share with your research. Thank you for listening to the Find Empathy podcast. If you would like continuing education credits for listening to this episode, go to findempathy.com backslash learn. Our goal is to help people living with challenging medical conditions find the mental health providers who understand their diagnosis. Our education and this podcast is focused on increasing the number of mental health providers who can help. If you are a psychologist or a mental health provider that specializes in health populations, please consider signing up on the free Find Empathy directory. Go to findempathy.com and select Get Listed. We would love to connect with you on social media. Look for us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. If you have suggestions for topics you would like covered by this podcast, let us know. Our email is info at Finally, please know that the opinions expressed by the experts today are their own. We are not financially supported by any of the businesses or resources described in today's podcast also remember that the content provided today is for educational purposes only. Please seek the guidance of your doctor or mental health provider for any questions you might have regarding your own health or medical condition. Thank you so much for listening and we look forward to you joining us in the next episode.